Hey, good morning, Sycamore View. I want to thank all of you for being here this morning. Grateful for all of you joining us online. Brittany, thank you for the prayer you led us in uh, this morning. Uh, I hope you know how much I love this church, how much I love you. I have some preacher friends who love preaching, but they don't love the churches that they get to preach in. They don't love some of the people. And when I die one day, there are a lot of things I hope like people say about me in my funeral, uh, but one of them is that not just that he loved to preach, but he loved to preach where he got to preach. Uh, where's Highland Oaks this morning? Highland Oaks Church of Christ, where are y'all? Can we welcome some of our Dallas friends this morning? <clears throat> well, the youth group at Highland Oaks, a few of them went on a mystery trip which brought them to Memphis. They stayed here last night, and what some of you may not know is I... I worked at Highland Oaks as an intern after my freshman year of, high, uh, of college, and then Casey and I worked there together. They hired us. We were dating at the time after our sophomore year of college. So I was a youth slash preaching intern at Highland Oaks. Casey and I went into that summer knowing it was a summer that would probably make or break our relationship because either we would be able to work in a church setting together or we wouldn't, and it went great. Uh, the campus at Highland Oaks, where you were for many, many years, was a part of the night where Casey and I got uh, engaged. We, we spent a little bit of that night there in the Highland Oaks Church, so very grateful for that. Please give your preacher, Pat Bills, a hug for me. Pat sings in almost every sermon he preaches. I don't do that here. Uh, I don't think people want it, but if you, also Liz Moore, I want you to give her a hug for me. Liz Moore has worked at Highland Oaks, I think, for over 15 years. We went to the same church growing up. Liz was my parents' age, and Liz adopted me as a teenager, as the kid in the youth group. She was going to pray over, and she has prayed over me every day for years. I would not be who I am today without the prayers that Liz Moore prayed over me, especially in some of those crazy high school years. So please give Liz a hug for me. Uh, just curious, how many of you stayed up last night to watch the Grizzlies? Show of hands. How many? How many of you did not know the Memphis Grizzlies were playing last night? Show of hands. God bless you. You probably have more of the fruit of the Spirit in you this morning than, than some of us. For those of you who stayed up, we have ushers who are about to come around with a few ounces of Red Bull. Just open up. We're going to help you out this morning. How many of you have a love-hate relationship with Dylan Brooks? It's a show of hands. We love him. Sometimes we don't. How many of you don't know who Dylan Brooks is? A show of hands. God bless you. You're, you, you have more of the fruit of the Spirit in you than many of us this morning. I had a prayer time in this room this past week, and sometimes I tell you about that, like when I pray through this room, and I don't do this to impress you, like, oh, our preacher, he has a, this prayer life, and he's always praying in the room. I hope no matter what church you're ever a part of, whether it's a large church, small church, house church, there should be an expectation that your church leaders they pray for their own spiritual development and that they are on their knees pounding on the doors of heaven for God to work in the people that they get to lead and serve alongside of. This past week, I came in here to have a time of prayer and I was one of those rises asking God, how do you want this time of prayer to go? And in this room, I have identified eight sections to this room. Some of you online, it may be hard for you to see this. Kind of right here, two up front. Then in the back, there are like two different sections. So eight sections. And I went to each section with a question and a prayer. And one was, God, can I go to each section? And can you help me identify new life that is in this section? Either new life because they've been born over the last year or new life because there are new people coming to Sycamore View. God answered that prayer in all eight sections. 
I went to all eight sections and I asked God, can you in this section right here show me and remind me that we are a multi-generational church. Every single section has at least three, some have four generations of people sitting in that section every week. I started trying to think of the youngest people in the section and the oldest people. If you're the oldest person in your section, don't raise your hand. Don't raise your hand. <laughs> God answered that prayer. I began asking God in each section, can you reveal to me, can you help me remind me that in this section there is diversity, whether ethnicity, socioeconomics, age, uh, just past experiences in life. God answered that prayer every single section. I went through every section and I asked God, help me to know, like somebody in this section that I see almost every Sunday, who I know there is a storm in their life that we need to be praying over. And, and there's somebody in every section who is currently going through a pretty major storm in their life. And then I went through each section and I asked, God, can you reveal to me and remind me in this section of the overcomers? Those who I know they've gone through storms in their life and they're still standing strong and victorious in Christ. Every section is full of overcomers. I'm just grateful for this body. I'm grateful. We've been in a study in the Gospel of John for the last eight or nine weeks. It started a few weeks ago in John chapter 12 when Jesus says, God, take this hour from me. And, and then Jesus says, no, this is why I came. And it's in that moment that God says, I have glorified your name and I will glorify your name. It's a moment in which they said it sounded like thunder. And from that moment, it's like God stamped his approval on what the, the next few days were going to look like. Holy week, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. It's like it started with the voice of God affirming the moment, and then it was even more than thunder. It built and built death, burial, and resurrection. And this morning, I want to be in John chapter 20. In John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, John, like, you got to love when there's an author of any genre who tells you why they are writing what they did. Like, I wrote for this reason. You got to especially love it in the Bible, so now you don't have to figure it out. Like, they're like, hey, just so you know, here, here's why I wrote everything I wrote. And here's what John says in John 30, or John 20, 30, 31. <coughs> Excuse me. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may continue to believe. Some of your versions just have believe. I think it's good for you to capture what that word means in that moment, that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. So let's just hold that right there for just a moment. If you'll go back to that, that image right there, that slide. Just hold that for a moment, because I want to remind you who John is writing to. Most likely, John is writing at the end of the first century, so he's writing to second, maybe even third generation Christians. And he's writing to some people who are struggling and doubting the existence of Jesus or what to do with Jesus. Was he fully God and just a little bit human? Was he fully human and maybe a little bit God? Was he really both? He's writing to people in which there was tension growing in the church between active Christians and secret Christians. Those who were active in their faith and bold in their confession and they wanted to live it out. And then those who were secret Christians, that when they were around other Christians... Like, they would let you know they're a Christian. But when they're outside of the gathering of the body, like, they didn't make it known. Because John's writing to people in which there was pressure coming from the empire. You had increased persecution. Surely these people were hearing the stories of increased persecution. And in the church or churches John was writing to, there was an increase of doubts and denial. The word belief in the Gospels, and catch this, the word belief 
shows up about 115 times in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You got that? 115 times. 84 of them show up in the Gospel of John. So John is constantly talking about belief and what it means to believe and what it means to continue to believe. So this morning, I want to talk about faith and belief and doubt and life. And what I hope we have at Sycamore View and what I hope God continues to create in this church is a safe and secure space for people to voice their questions about God and faith and life. And that in that safe and secure space, God may fill that space with faith. That we may create safe and secure space for people to voice questions. And then to trust that God can fill that space. And in a church of our size to know, like, we don't, we don't want people to be lonely in any aspect of life, right? It's not good for people to be alone. And it's really not good to be a lonely doubter. I am curious this morning how many of you have ever had questions or big questions, maybe just any questions, about God, the Bible, or faith. Will you just raise your hand where you are? And part of the reason I want to do that isn't to heap any shame on those of you who raise your hand, as if to say, don't come into church with doubts, just believe. It's so those of you who are in this worship service today, whether you are online with us or you are here in person, there may be people in this space that you have no faith. You show up with your family, but there's no faith. And there may be some of you who your faith is hanging on by a thread. And we just want you to know you're not alone. There are many other people who've been on this journey as well. So the second Sunday after Easter, there are churches all over the world who the text that they read in their worship service is John chapter 20, verses 19 through 29. Every year, second Sunday after Easter. And I wasn't aware of that when I had kind of planned the preaching calendar for 2023, but that's where I'm going to be today. And I know we ask you to stand and sit quite a bit in our worship services, but if you're able, will you stand while we read the Word of God this morning? John chapter 20, verses 19 through 29. And then we're going to talk about this. On the evening of that first day of the week, this is the day Jesus rose from the dead. On that evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands, and put my finger where the nails were, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. And then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. 
And for the reading of the Word of God, the whole church said, Amen. Amen. And please be seated. There's no question that it's too big for God. Do you believe that? And if there's no question that it's too big for God, there's no question that it's too big for God's church. Jesus encounters the apostles in this moment. If you notice, peace be with you shows up three different times. This is more than just a greeting. This is Jesus. This is like his way of, like he's crowning the moment. And Jesus is also reminding them of promises he had already given. Jesus is one who made promises, kept promises, and reminded people of promises. Have you ever had people in your life who have made a promise, but they didn't keep the promise? He made a promise, kept a promise, reminded them of a promise. If you look all the way back in John chapter 14, verse 27, here's what Jesus told them just days before his death. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. In John 16, verse 33, just days before, here's what Jesus told them. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus appears to fear-filled disciples. Like John even gives you like the details. These guys, like, or, or girls, I mean, these, we don't know who is all there. It could be the apostles, it could be others. They're in this room and they're not just in a house, it is locked. Did you catch that? They locked it up for fear of the Jews. So here they are, huddled in a house. They locked the door, they've locked the windows, closed the curtains, turned out the lights, they parked their cars, their camels, way down the road. Like, they didn't want anybody to know they were there. Set the alarm, ring cameras on, they expanded the ring camera, not just to cover the 10 feet around the door, but like 20 to 30 feet. Like, if anybody walks up, they'll be notified. If you've ever done that with your ring cameras and then it goes off, there's anxiety and then you realize it's just a bird flying around, you know what I'm saying? Like they did everything they could to lock up the house. Fear-filled disciples locked up in a home. Have you ever felt like you've been in a prison of fear? Like you've just been locked up by fear. Like they're locked up, fear-filled disciples, disciples fearful of what has happened, worrying about the future. Have you ever been there? You look in the past and it strikes you with fear because of events that have happened and then you worry about the future, what brings more fear, even though you know you need to live in the present, but you're not living in the present because 99% of your life is either spent thinking about the past or worrying about the future, which all creates fear. And then Jesus injects himself in a room full of fear. Jesus didn't send a message to them and say, hey, once you surrender and repent of all your fear, come and meet me for coffee. Jesus meets them in their fear. Like I'm coming into a fear-filled place, and the moment Jesus does, the first thing he says is, peace be with you. And then Jesus doesn't say anything. He begins to show them his hands and show them his side. Can you imagine what that moment was like? They're full of fear, all of a sudden Jesus appears in a locked up house and now Jesus is showing them his hands, showing them his side. It becomes this game of like somewhat show and tell, right? Like here are the scars. These scars remind you of the story. Like Jesus wasn't raised to life without scars. He was raised with scars. 10, 15 years ago, this became one of the, this image that wouldn't let me go. 
that Jesus was raised with scars because the scars told a story of God's redeeming power. And maybe one day when we're raised to life in Jesus, we'll have some scars too. Not to remind us of the sorrow, but to remind us of how God has redeemed the scars of our lives. The first book I wrote was called Scarred Faith. It's the idea that sometimes our faith is scarred. My mom and I wrote a book called Scarred Hope. It's the idea that our hope sometimes takes a few shots, but our hope is scarred, but it's still standing. And if you write a book on scarred faith and scarred hope, and you take 1 Corinthians 13 seriously, which says faith, hope, and love, the greatest is love, maybe one day I need to write a book on scarred love. Is there anybody here who has ever had love that has been scarred in your life? Maybe I could get you to help me write that book, right? It's this whole idea of scars in our lives that are redeeming. Jesus is showing his scars. Like these are telling a story of my faithfulness, of who God is. And then Jesus says this, catch this. Jesus says, as my Father sent me. Think about it. I can just imagine his hands are still like this when he says, as my Father has sent me, so I am sending you. This is like Jesus saying, as my Father has sent me into the world, and this is what happened when my Father sent me into the world. So I'm sending you into the world to spread this love, the same kind of love I've brought into the world, to spread the love. And sometimes when we spread this love, it asks of great sacrifices from us. I don't think this is Jesus like threatening them. I don't think this is a passive-aggressive way of trying to get them to go outside locked doors. This is Jesus' way of reminding them of mission, of reminding them of the life that they have been invited into. As my Father has sent me into the world to spread this love, even through sacrifice, so I'm sending you into the world to do the same thing. And then it says Jesus breathed on them, which especially over the last three years, we're like, we don't want anybody breathing on anybody. Can you just breathe on your neighbor? Don't, don't breathe on your neighbor real quick. Don't do it. <clears throat> Way too many germs on people these days, right? But Jesus breathed on them. And I don't know if this is literal, like Jesus went around the room and over each person, like, <coughs> breathed on them, and there was breath that came out of him. This could be John's way of connecting this to life. So catch this. Throughout the Bible, almost every time you read about breath, it is about death. It's usually in the context of so-and-so breathed their last breath. You know, so-and-so had their last breath. This is true from Genesis all the way to Jesus. They breathed their last breath. There are a couple of places in the Bible when breath is about life. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, when God created humanity, God created uh, humankind, it says in Genesis 2, verse 7, here's what God did. The Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. What you have in Ezekiel chapter 37 is this chapter of dry bones that God put back together that reflected life, but they were like mannequins. There was no life in them. And what it says is he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy son of man and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says, come and breathe from the four winds and breathe into these slain, like breathe into these dry bones that they may live. I think this is John's way of reminding people Jesus is bringing new life, new creation. Just as God breathed over creation in Genesis chapter 2, Jesus breathes over new creation now. Just as God put bones back together and gave them life, God can put brokenness back together. Breathe and there can be life. It's like Jesus is blessing this moment like with his breath. 
And if you can wrap your mind around the image of Jesus stepping into a fear-filled atmosphere to inject faith, what makes you think Jesus can't do the same thing now? So for those of you who find yourself surrounded by fear and anxiety, it may just be the place that is right for the presence of Jesus to show up, to open up his hands, to remind you of the peace that he still brings into this world. And then you get this guy named Thomas. And I kind of feel sorry for him. Because all of us, if we ever have the chance in heaven to meet Thomas, we're going to be like, oh, you're not, we're not going to say you're the Apostle Thomas who Jesus invited and called. We're going to be like, oh, you're doubting Thomas, which the Bible never calls him, but we do. You ever, were you ever given a nickname that just wouldn't let you go? Like a nickname you never wanted? And then once you get it, it's like that's all people remind, remember you as. Like, here's Doubting Thomas. But he wasn't always Doubting Thomas. If it wasn't for John, we would hardly know anything about this guy. But in John chapter 11, when Jesus is going to raise Lazarus from the dead, here's what Thomas says. Thomas is the one who said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with Jesus. It doesn't sound like a man who's just, all he's doing all the time is doubting. I guess courage in this guy. He said yes to following Jesus. And then now here he is saying, hey, we're going to go die with him. We're ready to sacrifice for him. In John chapter 14, he's the one that asks a really important question. Jesus is talking about, I'm going somewhere and where I'm going, you can't come. And, and he's the one that says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. So how can we know the way? Which for some people, maybe it's seen as doubting, but... Here he is with some apostles, and he's the one that's asking a question like, Jesus, we want to go wherever you go, but we, we don't know the way. And then you read this encounter in John chapter 20 between Jesus and Thomas, right? And this is one, like, Jesus shows up eight days later. Literally, it's eight days later, a week later, and Thomas is in the room with him. And he's in the room, and Jesus strikes up a conversation with him, like, shows him his hands and shows him his side. And now Thomas makes this grand confession. But I want you to think about this. Here's Thomas, who a week before doubted when the apostle said, we saw Jesus. And a week later, Thomas is in the room. He's in the space with them. He's with the other believers. And Jesus shows up. So maybe a word for some of you who are struggling with doubt or your faith is holding on by a thread, take a lesson from Thomas and just keep showing up. Especially with those who you know they do have faith. Like the, the people of God. Keep showing up. And I'm not doing anything outside of what John 20 reveals. Is like Thomas, he showed up, even in his doubt. He showed up, he kept company with the other people. And in that moment, Jesus appeared. And if you read John chapter 20, it sounds like Jesus showed up in that room just for Thomas, not for everybody else. Like, I'm coming to show up because I want Thomas to believe. And then there's this confession that comes from Thomas, my Lord and my God. And then you see in verse 29 where Jesus makes this claim, where Jesus says, Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and, have yet, and yet have believed. Which sounds really easy. But I know what Jesus claims in verse 29. It can be rather difficult. Gregory of Nicaea, 
what's called St. Basil's faith, ambidextrous. And here's what he noticed in this faith of this other church leader, is that he held in his right hand the joy of the Lord, and in his left hand the afflictions of life. And together he held the joy in his right hand, and afflictions in the left hand, believing that both somehow could serve the purposes of God in his life. So what happens in our lives when we want to hold joy and make room for the joy of the Lord, but we don't want to give any voice or make any room for the afflictions that we experience? What happens? Or what happens when we hold the afflictions up, and that's all we think about, and we're not making space for joy? What happens? But for St. Basil's ambidextrous faith was, I'm going to hold joy and I'm going to hold afflictions together, not believing that God creates every affliction we experience in life, but that God can work through everything. Joy and afflictions together. On Thursday, Josh Nix, our new apprentice, he and I went to Harding School of Theology for a banquet. And the speaker that day was Dr. Rick Oster. Dr. Oster stood up for just about 10 minutes, but one of the first things he said was this. And this is a man who's been working at HSD for over 45 years, this great scholar. And what he said is this, years ago I made a decision to take hold of the hand of God and to never let go, no matter what. Here's a man, a scholar, a theologian, a guy who's always writing articles and Years ago, I made a decision to take hold of the hand of God and to never let go, no matter what. John Irvin once said this, If there were no room for doubt, there would be no room for me. And when you read the Bible, it seems that God appears far less threatened by doubt than the church does. Where it seems that even Jesus sees doubt as an opportunity for him to step in and to be with people, not to shame people. Philip Yancey, who a guy, my favorite author, I've read almost every book he's written in the past 20 to 30 years. He says this, the only thing more difficult than having a relationship with an invisible God is having no such relationship at all. And then he tells this story. See if you can follow me. Philip Yancey writes this, one year a friend came to visit me in late June for the specific purpose of climbing mountains. Late season snow made all but a few mountains inaccessible, so we settled on one of the easiest, Mount Sherman. Normally a hiker can follow a gentle trail that winds, uh, that winds right to the obvious summit. And as we started from the tra- trailhead, however, we realized that a summer snowstorm had changed everything. Occasionally the clouds would part enough to give us a view of what we thought might be the summit, but then the sky would close tight around us in a total whiteout. False summits, and most mountains have them, present a trial for the climber. For three hours, you glance every few seconds at the top. Your eyes are pulled by a force like gravitation, and you cannot resist looking at the massive peak that is luring you up its side. And then just when you reach the top, you realize it is not the top at all. Perspective from below has fooled you. You see the real summit a half mile ahead, or is that too a false summit? In the climb up Mount Sherman, we began in snow and clouds and ended in snow and clouds and saw little in between. When a true whiteout settles in, you lose all orientation with the horizon and cannot tell if you're ascending, descending, or walking upside down. 
You strike out blind, which on mountains like the Rockies may well prove fatal. My partner and I discussed turning back and decided against it. We sat and waited for the clouds to clear a little, picked his spot and marked a compass bearing, and then struck out again. And when the clouds closed in, we sat in the wet snow and waited for another break. Aware of avalanche danger, we deliberately chose a longer route that circled the gentler slopes of the mountain and the cloud cover. We would hear the ominous crackling sounds of avalanches breaking loose from the other peaks around us. The heavy air made each one sound as if it was bearing right down on us, though though intellectually we knew differently, we thought. Sitting in snow in the middle of a cloud, with a sound like a sonic booms ricocheting all around makes one question maps, compasses, sense organs, and reason itself. We had judged correctly, though, and no avalanches hit nearby. Clouds parted long enough to give us a glimpse of a ledge leading directly to the true summit, and with care we managed to make it. The sign-in cylinder at the top, buried in snow, indicated that we were the first hikers that season to ascend Mount Sherman. And then came the fun part. Clouds broke up. We could choose our slopes, and what took four hours to ascend took less than two hours to descend. That climb, as I reflected on it later, put together what I have learned about the pilgrimage of faith. It involves miscalculations, thrills and hardship, long periods of waiting, and long periods of simply trudging. No matter how thoroughly I prepare, make precautions, and try to eliminate risk, I never succeed. Always there are times of whiteout when I can see nothing and avalanches roar down around me. And when I reach the summit, though, nothing in the world compares to the feeling of accomplishment and exaltation. And so it is with faith. If you need a companion on your journey, in Mark chapter 9, there is this moment when someone's asking Jesus for a miracle. And Jesus says, if you can, everything is possible for one who believes. And it says, immediately this boy's father said, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. In John chapter 6, it's disciples, some of them are turning away and they're not following Jesus anymore. And it says, from this time, many of his disciples turned and no longer followed him. And Jesus said, do you, you don't want to leave too, do you? And Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? Like, where are we going to go? And I guess I want to leave you with this today. Is that Jesus' wounds, and this is in the possessive, Jesus' wounds are a sign of his presence with us, always. He keeps showing up. This morning he shows up in the sounds of infants and children we hear in our worship service. Jesus keeps showing up in the songs we sing, in the prayers we pray. He shows up in the word that is spoken. He shows up in the bread and the cup. And this morning, I don't know if you find yourself as a fear-filled disciple or someone whose faith is hanging on by a thread. But here in just a moment, we're going to take the bread and the cup together as a church. If you're a guest here with us, just follow those around you as we move to tables. And as we do, be reminded that this moment, this meal, doesn't just tell us about an event that happened but the one who keeps showing up. May Jesus like, open up his hands to you today and show you the scars that bear witness to the story that is the greatest story the world has ever heard.
And may you hear the voice of Jesus speak, peace be with you in this meal today. Our elder, Sony Ramsey, is going to be up front to my right to receive you for prayer. Lenora Meyer will be over here to my right. Laura Moore to my left. There'll be a, one of our shepherds in the back, and I'll be up here to the front to the left. Is there, if there's anything we can do for you or pray with you, we're here. Will you bow your heads, close your eyes, and let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for keep showing up, that you keep showing up. We thank you, God, that you're not on vacation. You're fully aware of what is happening, not just in this moment, in this space, but in the lives of the people in this experience today. So may we hear your voice speak peace over us. For those who find themselves in the place of Thomas, may they keep showing up, even when it's hard. And just as you did in John 20, will you insert yourself into those fear-filled, anxiety-filled places in our lives? Reveal yourself to us. God, for the bread and the cup in this moment that holds it all together, we give you thanks in and through the name of Jesus and the whole church said, amen.